Good to see you here this morning. Open your Bibles to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Now, if you've been coming for a long time, you might be thinking, I think we're almost done with Matthew. We're in Matthew 28. Now, we are jumping out of order this morning because it being Easter Sunday, we want to focus on the resurrection. But I thought, well, we'll stay in Matthew. We'll preach a resurrection sermon out of Matthew. So when we come to Matthew 28 in order, we'll already have that one done. All right. So I know some of you are just waiting. Like, can we do get to another book? We will. And uh, just enjoy it while you're here. Because uh, I did the gospel of Mark within the first couple of years of being here. And it was about 10 years. I did another gospel. And my plan is if I'm here in another 10 years, we'll probably do Luke, maybe John. We'll do another gospel. And if I make it 40, <laughs> never mind. There's no way. So, uh, that's just, uh, we want to stay focused on, on the gospel, and we're there this morning. If you're using a Bible, there are Bibles you could use under uh, the chair in front of you or near you, page 1061. Open up with us and, and be there. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, if the tomb is really empty, then why doesn't everyone believe? Why doesn't everyone believe in the Lord Jesus Christ if that is true? So maybe the converse thought in your mind is, since everyone doesn't believe, then that must not be true. If something so unbelievable, so miraculous truly happened, then certainly everyone would be a Christian. As we're in Matthew 28, and we work through our passage this morning, I want you to keep your eye on the people. Now, the first person to put your eye on is the Lord Jesus Christ because he's risen. But then, secondarily, look at the other characters in the story. And there are three responses to the fact of the resurrection. And I want you to pay attention to that because I want to ask you to consider which one represents your response. Jesus Christ is risen. The tomb is empty. The scriptures make it clear. No one truly argues historically that that's not a fact. The tomb is empty. What do you do with that truth? What do you do with that fact? What's your response to the truth? I believe in the three responses we'll see in this passage, you will find yourself. So look for your response in this passage. Before we dig into the scripture, let's pray together. Our Father, we rejoice in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen. And it's because he's alive and because he has sent his Spirit, and the Spirit is here with us, that we can be transformed by the power of the Spirit using the Word of God to transform lives. And that is our only hope. So we cry out to you to do that right here in this place. Not for our glory, not for our name, but for your glory and your name alone. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 28, I'll read starting in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 15. Please follow along. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Amen. 
come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. <laughs> In the original language, it's like, hello. <laughs> I don't know, just so weird. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is God's gracious revelation to us. May we listen to it this morning. Our theme is this, King Jesus rises from the dead. Our king conquers death. That's what you need to see right from the beginning. We are wrapping up. In fact, we have just finished the Passion Week, the week of Jesus' crucifixion that has just come to a close. On Friday, Jesus Christ was crucified. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich disciple of Jesus, was given the body of Jesus, and he buried him in a tomb cut out of a rock. You can read that at the end of chapter 27. Then a great stone was rolled in front of the entrance to the tomb. And what I want you to see, and you can look back with me to verse 61 of 27, is this. I want you to see who was there. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. They were there when the body was placed into the tomb. These two ladies, notice that they're there at the burial and they're there at the resurrection. Important. How do you know how they know which tomb to go to? Well, they were there. It's also important to realize that the chief priests and the Pharisees were aware of Jesus' own prophecy of his own resurrection. And so they came to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and said, Look at verse 63 to 66. And they said this, Sir, we remember how that imposter, talking about Jesus, how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away until the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. What are these religious rulers, the Sanhedrin, trying to accomplish? They are trying to keep Jesus' disciples from stealing the body and falsely claiming that he rose as he had prophesied. That's what they're trying to do. What they're trying to do is they're trying to keep people from getting into the tomb Because they don't believe that Jesus would ever be able to get out. Notice the problem. The problem is they're trying to keep people out. Because they don't consider that Jesus is God, there's no way they can keep him in. That's amazing. That's amazing. So that's that's the context of where we find ourselves. So in chapter 28, verse 1, now after the Sabbath. So after the seventh day of the week has ended, it's the dawn of the first day of the week. And so we see the account of the king's resurrection. 
I'm just going to walk through what the scripture says, try to explain it to make sure you understand it. What is the account of the king's resurrection? Well, the first thing we see in verse 1 is that it happened very early on Sunday. The first day of the week, Sunday, it happened at the dawn or toward the dawn of the first day of the week. And this is why we gather on the first day of the week, because Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And so the Christian Sabbath is not day seven, it's day one. It's actually, and I don't have time to work into this, a lot to be said here, it's actually day eight. It's the first day of the new covenant era. And we celebrate the new covenant on day one, day eight. We don't celebrate on day seven. So we believe that Christ rose on the first day. We worship on the first day. That's why you're here, first day of the week. We used to, when we were really young and people were really dedicated to the Lord, we used to have sunrise services. Aren't you glad we didn't have that today? <laughs> I mean, some of you said, I wish we would have done that. Yeah, it was easier in Florida to have a sunrise service when it was about 60 or 70, maybe 80. It was too hot. Here, we've been freezing outside in the sunrise service. But anyway, never mind that. That's just extra. So what we have here is a momentous moment, a, a, such a momentous moment that it shifts the day of worship for God's people. It shifts all things. It is such, it's unbelievably momentous, and we cannot explain how much changed that day. Everything changed. And one of the ways we see that is God's people now worship on the first day of the week, not the seventh day of the week. Secondly, we see an angel makes it possible to see that Jesus had risen. So here in the account, we have our first behold. The word behold means stop and stare. Look. Don't miss it. Hey, watch. Look. Behold. And what do you behold? You behold an angel of the Lord descending from heaven. At the same time, there's a great earthquake as this angel comes and rolls this stone back. <laughs> and then he sticks around and he sits on the stone. And he just waits, waits for the ladies to show up. Now notice this carefully. He isn't letting Jesus out of the tomb. He's making it possible for others to look in or to go in. The tomb is already empty. And so the angel's not there to let Jesus out. The angel comes down this great earthquake, moves stone, and shows everyone the tomb is empty. Everyone, anyone can go and see the tomb is empty. Now what happens then? The guards pass out. That's what I say. They pass out in terror. Our family loves to watch America's Funniest Videos. It's like our Sunday night ritual. We eat cereal and watch America's Funniest Videos Sunday night. All right, that's, that's what we do. And uh, some of the best ones are the surprise birthday parties where the doors close and they open the door. Surprise! And we just saw it last week. This lady, she's walking in. Surprise! And she's... Flat, just flat on her back. I mean, just whew, done. That's what I see here. <laughs> There's a great earthquake. The soldiers, if they are napping, if they're not paying attention, they're now on high alert. There's an earthquake. They're all looking. There's an angel, and whew, it's just beyond imagination. Seeing an angel in flesh, though they're not flesh, in person, they're just I can see this pass out. So whether they're paralyzed in fear and still awake, whether they've passed out in fear, we're not sure what that exactly means, but you can see there, they cannot move. They are traumatized. The crazy thing is they thought they might have to fight off some fishermen trying to steal a body. How hard is that? Trained soldiers, you know, Peter, James, and John, you know, Peter was good at cutting ears off, but not much else. You know, well, how hard is this going to be? 
So we're, not, we're, we're expecting maybe some fishermen with some sticks and some people. We're not expecting an angel. The irony here is that the dead one is now alive, and the alive are like the dead. Notice the irony. Third thing that we see in the passage is the angel's message to the women. So the soldiers are paralyzed in fear. They're traumatized beyond belief. The ladies show up very quickly. And what does the angel say to the women? The first thing he says is, fear not. Fear not. He's saying, do not be afraid of me. Notice that he gives no such comfort to the guards. Christ's disciples do not need to be afraid ever. But unbelievers, and these guards are unbelievers, unbelievers should be afraid, they should be very afraid. And the angel doesn't say to the guards, oh, don't worry, it's no big deal, I'm just here to move the stone. No. He, he's, when God shows up, it is terrifying for those who don't love and know God. Even those who love and know God, it is a serious moment. And so there's, there's, a, there's a holy fear that comes with that, but not a terror. These women are not terrorized, they're not paralyzed. They are, <laughs> again, you're going, to be, you're going to be shocked. You're going to be stunned and those kind of things. But, but they're told, first of all, don't be afraid. And then the angel says, I know you seek the crucified Jesus. I know why you're here. And what the angel says is a confirmation of what everything said in chapter 27, a confirmation of what we know to be true. Jesus died on the cross. You seek the crucified Jesus, he was crucified. And if you've ever seen a crucifixion, and none of you have in person, praise God, easy, good for you, you don't survive Roman crucifixion. Read the story. Hung on a cross. Roman soldiers know how to kill people. They're professional killers. And what they do is they confirm that Jesus is dead by sticking a spear in his side. You're not going to fool these Roman soldiers. So Jesus died on the cross. The Roman soldiers say he's dead. The disciples believe he's dead. Joseph of Arimathea believes he's dead. Everybody believes he's dead. That's why the disciples take him down and don't take him home. They take him down. They wrap him and they put him in a tomb. Why? Because he's dead. Now, you say, you're kind of beaten on that point. Yes, absolutely. Because one of the crazy theories going around even still today is called the swoon theory. Swoon theory, which means Jesus passed out on the cross. He was so passed out, like the dead soldiers in the, in the garden, so passed out that the Roman soldiers thought he was actually dead. So they stuck a spear in his side. That didn't actually kill him even after all that. They brought him down off the cross, and as his disciples were taking him to the burial or whatever, he wakes up. Or worse, because the Bible's true, they wrapped him fully in these clothes. They put him in this tomb. They all think he's dead, and the coolness of the tomb revives him. And then he unwraps himself, moves the stone away, and walks out. That's the swoon theory. Now, if all you have to do is listen to some of the things that people have come up with to try to explain the empty tomb, and you realize they are seriously stretching. Talk about faith. It takes less faith to believe he rose from the dead than to believe that. That's just crazy. But that is one of the theories. And so the point is being made that he died. He died. He is dead. Notice the third thing. He says, Jesus is not here. So he did truly die, but he's not here now. Why? Because he has risen, for he is risen. And what I want to bring up, bring out here is that this is a bodily resurrection. 
The body of Jesus Christ is not here because the body rose from the dead. This is a bodily resurrection, not a spiritual resurrection. So among so-called Christians, among so-called religious people, they come up with another theory, which is, well, it's not a bodily resurrection, it's a spiritual resurrection, like the spiritual resurrection we will have on the last day. But no, not even the last day's resurrection is just spiritual because what's going to come out of the grave when we rise? Our bodies. But here's the point. If you say that there is no supernatural There is nothing that doesn't comport to the laws of nature. Just think about that phrase for a moment. The laws of nature, nothing can transcend that. So therefore, the liberal theologians say, nobody can rise from the dead. That's physically impossible. Everybody knows it. So what is the Bible talking about? Because they claim to hold to the Bible while claiming no one can rise from the dead. They say, well, that's a spiritual resurrection. You just have to understand it spiritually. Well, if you think the swoon theory is ludicrous, this is even more ludicrous, and there's no crazier people than religious crazy people. Here you go. So what do they say? So notice what the angel said. He's not here. Has he just spiritually risen from the dead? Now, if that's all it said, maybe you'd think that maybe it's just a spiritual resurrection. But notice he's going before you to Galilee. Is that spiritual or physical? But notice what he says to them in verse 7. Then he says, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And you can look at verse 9, and when Jesus shows up to these two ladies, they come and take hold of his feet. Spiritual feet or feet feet? These are real feet. These are bodily. He's there. He's alive. The tomb is empty. The body has arisen. Jesus Christ is alive in his resurrected body. There's no way to get around it in the text. And that is a physical, not spiritual, resurrection. But notice, fourthly, Jesus said this would happen. He is risen as he said. That's Jesus. As Jesus said, three times Christ prophesied to his disciples, at least three times recorded in Scripture, of his own death, burial, and resurrection. And I want to just bring those to you out of the Gospel of Matthew. We've been looking at these already throughout our study. The first one is in Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be Killed, and on the third day be raised. First time he told them. Second time, Matthew 17, 22 to 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Third time, Matthew 20, 18 and 19. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Notice how the specifics get get much more specific as we get closer to the cross. That is, I mean, just think about that that prophecy. That's what happened. That's exactly what happened. He prophesied that to his disciples. But the question I had is, how do the Sanhedrin, how do these scribes and Pharisees and chief priests know this? How do they know to go to Pilate to set a guard? Where did they get their information if this is just given to the disciples? Well, one place is recorded in John chapter 2, John chapter 2, 18 to 22. So getting out of uh, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of John, it says this in John 2, 18 to 22. So the Jews said to him, to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. They're talking about Herod's temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his 
body, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word of Jesus spoken. Even the disciples had a hard time understanding that. But I don't know, somewhere in here, whether it's this instance or another instance that's not recorded, the chief priests and scribes understood that he had predicted his resurrection because they go to Pilate. And notice if you go back earlier in the account of Christ's death, you'll see that they bring witnesses that bring up this very account against him that he claimed to be God. And so they're familiar with this. They even have false witnesses who can't get their story straight to condemn him. But they know, and they know so much, they seem in one sense to know more than the disciples. They're posting a guard. What are the women going to the tomb to do? They're going to go anoint the body. They've been told, they've been told, they've been told, but even they don't really get it. But it seems the people who are against Jesus the most got it. At least they got the prediction. They didn't believe it would happen. It's unbelievable. This, this account is just unbelievable. And then the last thing the angel says to these ladies is he says, see for yourselves. See for yourselves. Come and see the place where he lay. <laughs> they had just seen him. Uh, 36, 48 hours ago, being laid in this tomb. They saw the stone rolled in front. Now the stone is, is rolled back, and, and they can look in and see there, there's no body. Jesus is gone. This tells us clearly these are eyewitness accounts. These are eyewitnesses, and they tell us what has happened. And in verse 7, we see the angel's command. We're just going through the account, laying out what's taking place here. Then the angel commands the ladies, he says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So here's what you have to do. You've got things you need to do. You have uh, marching orders. What do the women do? The women obey. So we see the women's obedience. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb. Remember what he said? He said, go quickly. They departed quickly. I love that obedience, don't you? Hurry up and go. And they hurried up and went. They departed quickly and ran to tell his disciples. But what I want you to see in their obedience, I want you to see that they ran from the tomb with fear and great joy. With fear. I just meditated on this some this week, and I don't have a great answer. I have an answer, but I want you to think about it. Why do they have fear? The tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. The darkest day in history was when it seemed as if Christ was dead and buried forever. But now we have the greatest day in history. He's, he's risen from the dead. So now we know the cross is the greatest and darkest day. We can look at both sides of that. So here we have him risen. Why, why are they afraid? What's the fear? I'm going to let that just sit. Remember, the angel had told them, do not be afraid. They still have fear. What's their fear? But notice the mixed emotions. They have fear and great joy. <laughs> there it is, Christian. Great joy. Christians should be people who are filled with great joy. All right? I know we're Baptists. At least that's the name on the, on the door. We're Baptists. So Baptists have a problem with great joy. But we should be filled with great joy. Great joy. That's just fantastic. So do you have great joy today? Now, do you have great joy despite sorrow? Maybe you're hurting difficult times. 
physical struggles, diagnosis, going through all kinds of things, financial struggle. We can be filled with all kinds of different emotions. But what's amazing is you can have fear and great joy. So if it's possible to have fear and great joy, then it's possible to, uh, to be sorrowful and have great joy. It's possible to be um, hurting and have great joy. It's possible to be concerned, not anxious, be anxious for nothing. So it's possible for us to, as Christians to face the tremendous difficulties of our day and have great joy. So we should never be without great joy. And if our joy is gone, then, then we're missing something in our reflection, in our meditation, in our, in our understanding of who Christ is and what God has done for us. We should have great joy. And it's a fight. That's why Paul writes in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And just in case you miss it, again I say, <laughs> it's, it's a battle, is it not? It's a battle. So may God work in us to rejoice, especially today, but every day. Then we see in this account that these women are the first to meet the risen Lord. They are the first to meet the risen Lord. And here we are struck with another behold in verse 9. And behold, so here look, it's Jesus in the flesh meeting them. And he says, hello. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, it's so understated, is it not? You're, I mean, they're, they're going quickly. They're moving. I don't know. It's, they might not be running, but they're walking fast. And so they're going, they're going, and all of a sudden, you know, like, hello? I, <laughs> like Jesus said, behold, instead he just says greetings. And, and what do they do? What's their first response? Worship. They fall at his feet, and we see that as an act of worship. They took hold of his feet. They're at his feet. They are blown away. They're, they're grabbing hold of his feet, and they are worshiping. And once again, what are they told? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, what I would say here is, this is where it kind of catches me, and it brings me back to what I said earlier about they, they run away with, with fear and great joy. And here they run and to Jesus, they grab his feet. Are they afraid of Jesus? They're not afraid of Jesus. Why does he tell them, do not be afraid? He's not saying, don't be afraid of me. So they left the empty tomb rejoicing with fear. They see Jesus, they're worshiping, and they're still fear, so he's telling them, do not be afraid. Afraid of what? So this is where I came to it, and, and I think it's, it's legitimate. There could be other answers. You have your own answer. This is, the Bible's not clear. I don't think it's clear. I believe they've just seen the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, crucified. They've seen all he's gone through. They know that the, the crowd, the Jewish leaders, everything is turning against them. And even though the tomb is empty, Jesus is going before them to Galilee. Meet me there. What's going to happen next? Have you ever been afraid or concerned or anxious about the future? If they crucify Jesus, who's next? He's risen, but what's next? What's happening? I think there's a tremendous amount of concern, fear of being hunted down and crucified. That's one guess. And yet, what does Christ say? Do not be afraid. And then he tells them what the angel told them, go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, there they will see me. This does not mean that they're not going to see him in Jerusalem. They're going to see him in Jerusalem, but they're also going to go to Galilee. That's the last place they'll see him. But notice they worshiped. Are you worshiping Jesus Christ today? Is your response to the empty tomb, to the risen Lord, to bow at his feet and worship? 
Do you worship him as Lord today? Well, that's what happened. That's what happened. That's the account. There you go. So what? You always have to have the so what. That's what. Now, so what? What does it mean? What is the, the meaning of the resurrection? Or in a sense, what is the application for you? What's, what's this, what does this have to do with you? I love history. Do you love history? Read history. You want to know what happened in history? Then you read all this history and then you say, so what? A lot of history seems to have no connection or impact on your life. A lot of it does in ways you don't understand, but we just read it because it's interesting. We want to know what happened. We don't read it and say, wow, that's why this is. And that would be a good way to read history. But we read this account. Is it just history or does it have meaning, meaning for you? So this is where we go to the application. I want you to see the response to the king's resurrection. The response. Now, we've been looking at one response all the way through so far. We're going to look at a couple more, but let's review the women's response. So the response to the king's resurrection, first of all, let's look at the women. And notice that the women are the first eyewitnesses. That is significant because in Roman court and in Jewish court at the time, women weren't allowed to give eyewitness testimony. So why are the women the first to see if women are not really officially eyewitnesses? Because... God is changing things, and in his word, and in what God is doing, women have a significant role and a significant place to play, and that's radically different than first century, uh, the first century world. Now, we live in a time where the scales have been tipped far in the other direction. It, it makes no sense to us or why that would be important. But for first century Christians, the fact that God first appeared, Jesus Christ first appeared risen to women was a significant, significant moment. But also, these eyewitnesses knew where the tomb was, as I said before, because they knew that he was there. They knew where he was buried. So what do we learn in application, Christian? If you are a Christian here today, what do we see? First of all, Christians see and believe. Christians see the empty tomb and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not see the empty tomb and believe, then you're not a Christian, because Christians see and believe. These women believe. Secondly, Christians obey God. The angel tells them, Christ tells them, and what do they do? They obey. Christians are obedient. Even if it sounds crazy, even if it doesn't make any sense, if it's from God, we obey it. Because Christians obey. So if you're not obedient to God, are you truly a Christian? I want you to test yourself here. Thirdly, Christians tell others that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Are you telling others? Are we testifying to the risen Lord, the risen Savior? Christians tell others. Go and tell the disciples. Go and tell others. Fourth, I've already hammered this. We'll hammer it again. Christians are full of great joy. <laughs> full of great joy. I almost said, can I get a witness? But I didn't go there. All right? Full of great joy. But I thought it. Just letting you know. Fifthly, Christians worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these aren't new. It's not fascinating. But this is just the application. We see all these things with the women, and we apply those things to the Christians because these women are believers. They are disciples. They are Christians. And if we are Christians, we will have the same response to the empty tomb that they did. Now, secondly, the response of the guards. So we have three responses. I warned you about this at the beginning of the sermon. We see the guards. So we need to behold one more thing. Verse 11. While they, the women, were going. So here's the picture. While the women are going and doing what they're told, they're leaving the garden. They're going to the disciples. At that same time, some of the guards are waking up. And now they're going. So kind of we have two things happening. Two responses at the same. Two people saw the angel. Two groups of people. 
saw the stone rolled away, saw the empty tomb. They know what has happened. You see two responses, and what you see is they're going in opposite directions. Now, does it say they went, one went north, one went south? No. But spiritually speaking, these are opposite responses, and that's what you need to behold. Behold this. And so many times in this story, what do we miss? We miss the guards. We miss the other people at the tomb. And we also miss the spiritual rulers, and we'll get to them in a minute. So verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. I love that, all that had taken place. They go and give their eyewitness account. But the response is this. They see, they acknowledge, but they do not believe. They know what has happened, but their response is very different. Their knowledge of the facts of the empty tomb The fact that the body is gone, the fact that they saw an angel, there was an earthquake, the stone has been moved, this fact didn't lead to any change of heart or to any change of action. And here's the very important truth that none of us can miss today. Mental assent to the facts is not enough to save you. So many people in our world today believe, I'm a Christian because I believe that these things happened in history. I believe that Jesus actually was born, maybe maybe even born of a virgin. He even maybe lived a sinless life. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he rose from the dead and the tomb is empty. I believe all those facts. Therefore, I'm a Christian because I believe the facts. Notice about these guards. Do they know all those facts? It's not knowledge. It's not an assent to the truth that saves you. It's not enough. It's not enough to agree that those things are true. This isn't enough to save you. You must believe on. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You must repent and believe. You must turn from your sin and turn to Christ as Lord and Savior. He's the living God. He's God in human flesh. He's the Savior of the world. He died for my sins. It's not just an empty tomb and someone who came out alive. It has a spiritual meaning for my life to transform me. If you don't believe that, you can believe that the tomb is empty. You can tell everybody, he came out. Somebody rose from the dead. So what? Crazy things happen. Maybe that's the craziest thing that's ever happened. But what does it mean for me? Now, that's the guy I follow. That's the guy I look to as Lord and Savior. That's the guy I trust. That's radically different. And what do these guards do? Do they have any of that? No, but they know. They know all of it. That's just amazing. Now, did any of these soldiers repent and believe at a later time? We don't know. As far as I know, we don't know. But that was their only hope. It was their only hope. But their immediate reaction is not the same as the women. They do not repent and believe. They do not believe. They do not go and do those things in their their account. What else happens here? Well, these guards, they cover up the truth for personal financial gain. So they took the money, verse 15, and did as they were directed. What were they directed to do? Lie. And tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Does that sound plausible? Does that sound realistic, that people would cover up the truth for money? People would lie for money? But I want you to see how terrible this lie is. It's not just the resurrection of a dead person. This is the Lord Jesus Christ risen again. This changes 
everything, and that's what you lie about? You lie about the one who prophesied that this would happen. You lie about the one who, who died on the cross. You lie about that. You cover up the greatest truth, the most important news, the greatest thing that's ever happened in history. You lie about that. You cover that up for how much money? How much money would it take for you to bury uh, the uh, cure for cancer? I mean, not to, I'm not spreading any conspiracy theories here or anything crazy like that, but let's just say that people found a cure for cancer, but all those drugs and all that hospital work and all those doctors who have to do all these things, if we had a cure, we wouldn't have all that money, so what do we do? We bury it so that we can make money. Would anybody ever do anything like that? What kind of terrible person would, would bury the cure for cancer? I'm sure somewhere out there, someone's buried the, the, the idea that we can all have cars that run on like one ounce of gas for a year, you know? They, they buried that engine. I mean, all, just think about all these things that could change the world for some money. How much money would it take for you to bury life-saving things? But this is even more than that. This is eternally saving. This is world-changing stuff. And we're going to do it for like, what, 20 bucks, 100 bucks? How much would you take to bury something like this and to lie about it and to cover it up? And that's what they did. They knew. They knew. Terrible. So what level of lies can be bought? We live in a world where we're trying to figure that out. People lying just for financial gain. Or tremendously important things, but there's no greater lie than this lie. Third, third response. You need to see the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. These are the most fascinating in the whole story. We, so, we focus on the women. We focus on Christ, absolutely. But in the sense of the forgotten characters in the resurrection story, this is, this, these are the ones who grabbed my attention, the Sanhedrin. What's fascinating here is that they knew what Jesus had prophesied about his resurrection. Remember the end of chapter 27? And now they hear the truth of what happened. These guards come and they tell them everything. They tell them what happened. They tell them the tomb, that Jesus is gone. And it wasn't that the body was stolen. They know that. They tell the truth. So what do the Sanhedrin do? What should they do? Here they had the prophecy. They knew the prophecy. They tried to protect from it happening, and now it actually happened. What they were afraid would happen, it happened. What should they do? They should repent and believe. They thought all this time that he was of the devil. They thought he wasn't the son of God. They thought he wasn't the Messiah. They fought him every step of the way, but now they have uncontroverted I don't even know the word I'm trying to say. There's no way you can deny the evidence. You can't deny it. It's empty. They're telling you what happened. Why won't they repent and believe? They know the whole thing. They've been with him. They've been watching him. They saw the miracles. That's satanic. They saw the power. That's satanic. They fought him every which way. They were defeated all the time. And now it's happened. Why won't they believe? What more do they need to hear? What more do they need to see? And here's the fact. The Sanhedrin reject the Lord Jesus Christ in the face of overwhelming evidence. And that wasn't the word I was looking for. Something worse than that. Incontrovertible. Something like that? Is a word like that? There we go. Write that down and use it today. It's your word of the day. Now, what did they do when they heard the story? They assembled and they took counsel. They get everyone together to see what they need to do. <laughs> Would you like to have been in that meeting? I mean, what's, how's that go? I mean, I mean, what? So, what do we do? What's the plan? Repent and believe. No one probably floated that idea. They say, "How do we 
bury this? How do we bury this? And you know the story. They paid off the guards. And they planned to protect the guards by paying off the governor. They would satisfy the governor if the governor was concerned. Why would they do that? Why would they do this? Why would they do this? Because they're covering up the truth to maintain political power. They cover up the truth, world-changing, transformational, eternal life truth to maintain political power. The guards did it for money. They do it for power. They were too far gone. They had denied all the clear evidence they had seen so far. They were so hardened that an empty tomb doesn't faze them. It never sways them. They don't reconsider. They already knew the truth. They had already knew enough truth. They already saw enough, and now they deny it all the way to the end. This tells us that truth and evidence is never enough. You ask someone, why don't you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? They say, well, I don't have enough evidence. They are not speaking the truth. I don't call them a liar because they might actually believe that lie. But they have enough truth. These men have all the truth, more truth than any of us will ever see in our lifetime, and they will not believe. They refuse to believe. They reject there's no way to deny the fact that the tomb of Jesus is empty. There's nobody claiming that it's not empty. Now everyone has to explain why it's empty. Why is it empty? So if you tell people today, you go and tell them, Jesus Christ is risen, the tomb is empty, and they'll say, yes, the tomb is empty. That is an historical fact. The tomb is empty. The question is, why is it empty? Well, swoon theory. He woke up and got out. Another theory, the stolen body theory. I wonder who came up with the stolen body theory. How long has that one been around for? You know, maybe, uh, let's say, like 2,000 years. And by the time Matthew writes this, 30, 40 years later, it's still being there. Uh, I think it's Justin Martyr was still fighting that truth in the second century. And guess what? Go online, Google the empty tomb, and what will you find there? Stolen body theory. It's amazing how lies hang on. Stolen body theory. You have to make some. You have to make some sense of the empty tomb. You got to come up with something. That theory still lives today. Now, what I want you to see is, for it to be true, there are some things you need to keep in mind. If that is true, these fishermen must be able to steal the body while these soldiers slept. Now, that means you're sleeping pretty hard for someone to come move this giant stone away, get the body out, do that all silently while everybody's sleeping. That's pretty fantastic. But the one that most of you probably already thought about is, is if they were sleeping, how do they know what happened? <laughs> we were all sleeping, and these guys came and stole the body. Well, how do you know that? Well, Bob woke up, but he wouldn't tell anybody. I mean, what happened? So somebody saw it but didn't wake the rest of them? I mean, it just it doesn't make any sense. It holds no water. The soldiers failed in their duty. This is the very reason they were put there. The very reason they were put there was to keep these men from being stealing the body. And what do they say happened? These men came and stole the body. Talk about dereliction of duty. Now, some would say that if these were Roman soldiers, they could be put to death for this, but we believe they're probably connected with the Jews. There's some sort of uh, soldiers that work with the Sanhedrin. They're probably not Roman soldiers, but even so, they could still get in trouble with Pontius Pilate. And so Pontius Pilate starts asking questions. We'll pay you guys off. We'll pay him off. We'll make sure everyone's taken care of. You got a little mob action going on here. So the soldiers failed in their duty. The soldiers who slept 
on duty, they had no consequences. There's no consequences. That should have caused everyone to question the whole theory, and it should today. Now, what I want you to see as we, we get here near the end is all these disciples who died as martyrs. Peter, James, John. John didn't die as a martyr, so there's one who didn't. He died of old age. But all the rest of these disciples, these women, all of these Christians, all these people who were eyewitnesses of the account, they died. The martyrs who died for this truth gave their lives for something that they knew was a lie if it wasn't true. Peter, James, Andrew, these, if, if Jesus did not come out of the tomb alive, risen, if they stole the body, then all of these Christian martyrs who were there at the time died for what they knew was a lie. Now, I want to I make this point clear. It is obvious that people will lie for financial gain. Do you see that in the story? Will people lie for financial gain? They'll cover the truth for financial gain. We, we all know that. Will people lie to maintain political power? Absolutely. But will people knowingly die? I say knowingly die for a lie. Will people die for a lie that will cost them everything financially? See, the guards lied for financial gain. And if you believe their story, you believe that the disciples are lying for financial loss. What cost the disciples, it cost them financially, but it also cost them politically. There's no political gain in this story. They don't gain political power. This is not uh, put them forward. It costs Christ's disciples everything, and then in the end, it cost them their lives. All for a lie? We can understand lying to get ahead. We can understand lying for money, lying for power. We can understand all those lies, but to tell a lie that gets me killed? I mean, that just does not happen. Psychologically, at the last moment, you'll change your story to match up with the truth because you're not going to die for what you know to be a lie. Now, if you die today for what you believe to be true because you weren't there, that makes sense. But the original martyrs, the first century Christians who were there, who saw it, makes absolutely no sense. It cost them everything. And this is what Jesus had told them. Just listen, Matthew 16, 24. Jesus had told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Because the way of the Christian is the way of the cross. And the way of the Christian is dying to yourself. And it might actually cause your physical death. You might be martyred for the sake. So why would you do that if it wasn't true? This is what these eyewitnesses are telling us. When Peter's beheaded, when James has his head cut off, when um, Stephen is stoned, let's read the book of Acts. You see these first century martyrs. You see them dying. They're dying for what they believe to be true because they know it's true. They saw it. They understand it. They're not dying for a lie, and it costs them everything. If you're a Christian, it will cost you everything. Maybe not right now. Maybe not for a while. But Christianity has a high cost Therefore, count the cost. So if you're not a believer here today, the tomb is empty. Will you repent and believe or continue to reject in the face of overwhelming evidence? Will you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or continue to reject in the face of overwhelming evidence? And if you continue to reject, I would ask you this question. Do you know why you are refusing? Why do you refuse to repent and believe? The guards refused to repent and believe for financial reasons. The Sanhedrin refused to repent and believe for political power. What's your 
reason. What's your reason? I want, to hear, I want you to hear this very clearly. You should know what it is that will have you spend eternity in hell. You better know your reason. I've asked many people over the years, why will you not repent and believe? They will make a mental assent to the truth, but they will not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I say to them, why not? And most of the time, they can give me no answer or they're not willing to give an answer. But I tell you this, if it's going to cost you your eternal life, you better know what's worth it. You better know it. Is it money? Is it power? Is it is it acceptance? Is it having a good time? I don't, I don't know what it is for you, but whatever it is, you should know it. Because in eternity, you'll be thinking about it. As a Christian, what do you do today? Rejoice with great joy in your resurrected Savior. Rejoice with great joy in your resurrected Savior. In the face of any fear that you have, in the face of any concern, any anxiety, any terror, any difficulty, any hardship, in the face of any other emotion, rejoice. Our king conquered death. And all of us will die. But if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will also rise. Death has been defeated. Sin has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. Hell has been defeated. We live with him, and we will live with him for eternity. And therefore, no matter what is going on, we can rejoice always in the face of any difficulty because our Savior lives. Amen. Father, we rejoice. I rejoice in you. And here in just a minute as we stand and sing, may we sing with all that we have. May we sing with great joy. May our response to the truth eternal, life-changing truth be something that just causes us to give it all that we have and to rejoice all day long, to rejoice all week long, to rejoice always in what you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.